This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It's election time here in Ontario. Uh, the writ has officially dropped and the Ontario election has started. Uh, interestingly enough, an Ipsos poll that was done for uh, Global News says that 74% of Ontarians wish there were three different leaders instead of the three we have to pick from. Actually, four, considering the Green Party. Joining us to talk about this is Alan Carter. He, of course, is the anchor of Global News at 530 and 6 in Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Alan, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, good morning, Bill. The way we go. Yeah. Listen, are you, are you doing the campaign bus thing this, this time around? Uh, well, you know, I might be, but I'm on my way to the uh, uh, Ford's first event of the campaign, and, of course, he doesn't have a bus. Yeah. So, like a chump, I'm driving myself right now. Oh, my goodness. Well, there go the expense accounts. Uh, <laughs> I, it was Rob Benzie from the Star, I think, uh, tweeted the other day. He says, I, I'm not going on the bus. I'm just going to stand behind one and inhale the fumes. And that kind of brings back memories of past campaigns. But, yeah. <laughs> but like, well, you, it, go ahead. I say the, uh, the battle is true, uh, well and truly joined. This morning we've got all three leaders uh, campaigning in Toronto before they begin fanning out across the province. Wynn and... Uh, Ford heading towards the Ottawa area, Horvath staying here. And then the thing to keep your eye on, uh, Bill, for later this week is uh, on Friday, the Northern Debate, which is in the middle of the afternoon in Perry Sound. All three leaders will be at that. What do you, what, uh, before I get into it, uh, the, the poll, which I found rather fascinating, I, I haven't talked to you since the, uh, the debate the other night. What was your read on that, Alan? My read on it was that fairly much as as expected it was going to be a lot of attacks against mr ford who was not going to look particularly sharp and deep on policy which he never has and doesn't continue to uh and meanwhile the the question would be with him as the front runner is he able to maintain his composure and it, some people were wondering if there was you know did he take some sleepy time tea right before the <laughs> debate because he certainly certainly seemed to have that under control uh, so that, you know, that eliminated the angry uh, Doug Ford narrative, which the liberals are really hoping that they'll be able to capitalize on at some point. And I think the other thing is, is that really super interesting, Bill, I think about yesterday and how many times the premier hit that note again and again and again about how she'd screwed up on the debate mm -hmm. when Ford said, how did, you know, when did you lose your way? And that, you know, she did, you know, woke up in the middle of the night and decided, well, wait a second, I, what I should have said was, I haven't lost my way. And I don't know about you, Bill, but generally, you know, when I wake up in the morning and think, oh, what a singer I had there, uh, and I missed that opportunity, I don't get an opportunity to call a press conference and get a do-over. No. No, no mulligans in this business. No, there aren't mulligans in the business, but somehow Wynn yesterday tried to play that as a strength. Yeah, but what's said is already said. I mean, that's on the record. You know, her answer is her answer, and I'm uh, I'm sure that just about any politician you talk to is going to say, "Boy, if I had that to do over again." Uh, I'm sure that Al Gore has that to say. John Kerry has that to say in their presidential elections way back when. Uh, but but you know, it was what it was, and and, and I think the answer that that Wynn gave that day, I think, was probably characteristic of the fact that she was pretty much back on her heels for an awful lot of that debate. Well, and, uh, you know, she's going to have to take that kind of heat and, I think, be a little bit more... I think she's got to be a little better at that. And also, I wonder about this sort of, you know, on the back of the napkin sort of play yesterday with the whole thing about talking about herself and I haven't lost my way and making this very personal about her, which I think is a misstep by the liberals who were seeing some growth and 
some steadying of their numbers coming into the writ period by concentrating on policy. And they seem to have gotten away from that, and I think that's to their detriment. Well, because she's always pulled behind her party. I mean, for, really, I, since Joe took over the leadership, I, mean, I know she's won two elections, but people just seem to say, well, I'm not really crazy about her, but I kind of like what these guys plan on doing. And that seemed, as you mentioned, Alan, that seemed to be the strategy heading into this election. Let's talk about the dental care. Let's talk about uh, lower hydro rates. Let's talk about uh, you know all the stuff that they've thrown at us over the last little while. And and it did seem to have some sort of an impact. I mean, even the night before the debate there, there seemed to be a narrowing of that gap uh, between her and, and Doug Ford. Uh, but if she makes it all about her, I can see that evaporating. Well, exactly. And, you know, she got some nice play earlier this year with a town hall where they knew she was going to get some flack, and she had this sort of prepared bit where she said, it's not about me, you know, it's, it's not about, I'm not in this for me, I'm in this for others, and that sort of stuff. And it played pretty well. It kind of went, you know, a little viral for them. Um, and I, I, just, I, I just wonder why that they have decided that she wants to say, well, I haven't lost my way. It's not about, like she kept saying, my way, my, my. I, I thought for, at some point, I thought Sinatra would start playing <laughs> in the background. Uh, well, that may well be the campaign theme, I guess, as they go forward. So, so we know a lot of voters don't like Kathleen Wynne, and and we could probably spend three hours talking about why. And there's probably as many reasons as we can think of. But I'm surprised by this poll that the, the Global News commissioned with Ipsos that says that 74 percent of Ontarians aren't really crazy about any of the three main party leaders. Yeah, and doesn't that really ring true in your mind? I mean, it's the sort of thing I've been talking about, Bill, in the last little while, which is. I, my gut tells me that despite the, the, the heightened interest in this campaign, in this election, that numbers are going to be depressed uh, in terms of turnout. Because if the election was held today, I, I think we would see a, a, a Ford win, but we would also see a lot of PC supporters, traditional PC supporters, perhaps staying home. and not really crazy about Mr. Ford and the kind of brand of conservatism he has. Whereas the liberal and progressive voters, you know, they may stay home as well because, you know, you're like, well, I can't bring myself to vote for win, even though I like the progressive ideas. And then, of course, you know, Horvath hoping to pick up a lot of, uh, you know, that disaffected vote. But I think there's still with us in this province a hangover from the 90s and, you know, Bob Ray. And the province still kind of like, I just don't know about giving the keys to the NDP. Yeah, I, I sense that every time we, we do phones on this, and, and I, especially here in Hamilton. I mean, you know, we're, we're NDP rich here when it comes to MPs and MPPs. Notwithstanding that, though, I still get a lot of feedback from people that were solid NDP supporters that gave up the ship, and it had it actually didn't much have to do with Bob Ray's government and the deficits they brought. It was the Ray days. It was, you're going to actually tear up our contract and make us work for free for a few days? To heck with you. And they still hold that resentment. And it's still there. Yeah, on, on the left, it's still there. Uh, in the center, they're somewhat unfairly, just because of the way it all you know, timed out with Mr. Ray coming in just at the time of a, a recession, which he did not cause. But nevertheless, he still wore it. And there's a kind of, I, I think, a, a, just a lingering feeling that, wow, I don't know if we want to give the, you know, hand the cupboard over the NDP. And, and you know what is funny, too, Bill, is that you know, I, as I walked through the park uh, yesterday, Queen's Park, and I filed a piece on it yesterday, there's all these portraits, of course, of premiers past. Mm-hmm. And they 
they, they haunt the building and they haunt Ontario. Yesterday, Lynn was going on and on again about Mike Harris, and Harris was the reason that she got into politics. And then there were all kinds of cautionary stories on the walls, too, like, you know, like Frank Miller, remember the last of the, of the big blue machine? Like, think about him coming in, and just like when, you know, 15 years of liberal power, you know, there would have been decades of conservative power, and although Mr. Miller won a minority, he was swept aside by this appetite for change. And is that appetite for change going to just sweep away win and there's nothing she can do about it? I think that's a big part of the narrative. I know, and, and the consistent narrative that we've all talked about over the last couple of weeks is this mood for change in Ontario. But the poll that you guys talked about last night, Alan, indicates that, yeah, we want change, but I'm not sure we know what kind of change. Because uh, I'm, I'm hearing the same thing. I've got uh, uh, people that used to be NDP supporters that can't because of what we just talked about. I know an awful lot of people have talked to us and, and, and contacted the program that were liberal supporters and said we just can't do it anymore. But And they were more than willing, by the way, to, to look at the, uh, the at the progressive conservatives as an option under uh, Patrick Brown and, and the People's Guarantee. And they thought, you know, we can kind of live with that. Uh, we all know what happened with him. Uh, but then they said, well, I'm sure they're going to pick Christine Elliott, so I think we can still do that. But they picked Ford, and now they're saying, I can't do this. I don't know where I'm going to go. You know, and uh, I don't know if it's like like this for you, but for me, there's touchstones in my life, people who, you know, are barometers. And for me, on the conservative side, it's my father. You know, he's from Burlington, a traditional conservative. It's always been PC, except for in 2014 when it flipped liberal. And he says... I've always voted PC, but I don't think that I can, I can vote for Ford. So I, and I, I, I think he might stay home. I mean, I don't know, but I think there's a lot of people like that in the province. So that when you start talking about those kind of voters and them not showing up to the polls, what does that mean for the results? Who is motivated to vote? Well, but your dad's a typical example of a lot of the conservatives that we've talked to over the last couple of weeks, especially in the Burlington area. I, I mean, he's used to to the Cam Jacksons and Bill Kemplings and, and, and people, and even going back George Kerr, if you want to go back far enough, that were that, that red Tory, that, that uh, John Robarts, that Bill Davis sort of a Tory. Uh, and they're looking at Rob Ford and said, that's, that's not what I think is, 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 represents what the, I want that party to be. Well, exactly. And, and I mean, you know, and you make that great point about the People's Guarantee, and, and everybody really, all the punditry, looked at that and thought, well, this is a winning proposition because it's going to capture that middle. It's going to get that, it's going to get that red Tory. we got a red Tory back in the race, and then once the People's Guarantee is gone, there, we don't have that anymore. And so we don't have a Bill Davis center of the road. There is nobody running in the center in Ontario right now, and I think that is what that poll reflects in terms of the dissatisfaction. Ontario, at the end of the day, is a middle-of-the-road province. We don't like too hot or too cold. That's not what we care for. And, you know, Mr. Harris and Mr. Ray, I think, are outliers on, on that. The rest of the time, Dalton McGinty, you know, Bill Davis, Leslie Frost, where you go all the way back, we like it right down the middle, and that's what I think you see reflected in that poll. So uh, how's this going to manifest itself as, as we move towards June 7th then? Uh, with this, uh, I know there is a none-of-the-above party right now, uh, but, but obviously I don't know that's going to be an option for too many people. I mean, they're going to have to mark, I hope anyway, they're going to have to mark a ballot for somebody. Well, yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, whether or not... You know, whether or not my dad votes or, or uh, you know, uh, other liberals don't go and vote, 
somebody's voting, and at the end of the day, you're going to count them all up. And I, I think that the motivated voter is going to be the conservative voter in the rural areas and in the 905. I think that at the end, unless there's a seismic shift in the voting uh, intention, and that's easy to happen in a campaign because campaigns matter, then right now I think that the conservatives have the most motivated base to vote. Uh, and people are going to vote out of anger, and that's bad news for the liberals, obviously. What about I was, the story that David Aiken filed yesterday in Global 2? I found very interesting and fascinating, Alan. Uh, on that point that you've just mentioned is that, you know, the, the Ford support, the PC support is at about 40%, but, I mean, you know, by just do the simple math, that means 60% of the people don't want him. But it's kind of divided, obviously, between the liberals and, and the NDP and, and obviously some green votes in there as well. But they said if there's a coalition of those groups, if they decide, you know what, we don't want this guy, so I'm going to vote for who I think is going to be able to beat him. I mean, we've seen that happen before uh, with that kind of voting. It, it happened a couple of times, obviously, uh, with Kathleen Wynne, you know, whether we don't want Tim Hudak, we don't want him firing 100,000 people, or, or the John Tory thing with the, the faith-based schools. And so there was this rush in those days to say, well, we better vote for the liberals just to stop them. Is that going to happen again, or are people so entrenched in their positions right now that they're just going to say, I can't bring myself to do that? Well, here, let me give you the perspective from the NDP, because they held a um, technical briefing last week to talk about their campaign strategy. And I asked specifically of the chief of staff, how are you going to counter the traditional liberal play late in a campaign to say a vote for the NDP is a vote for the PC? Basically, a vote for Andrea means that Doug Ford gets a majority. How are you going to counter that? And their perspective is, this time it's different. That just like in the last federal election, where midway through the campaign, the electorate sort of thought, you know what, this is a change. This is a ch- we're going to change the government. It doesn't matter. We're changing whoever's in power. Now we're just going to decide between the liberals and the uh, NDP federally. And that that's going to be the same situation in Ontario this time so that there won't be any strategic voting. It's just going to be a simple ballot question. Who do you want to replace Kathleen with? I'd be surprised. Uh, I mean, if that's going to happen, that, that pretty much guarantees that Doug Ford's going to be the next premier, if it's, because the numbers indicate that there's not going to be much of a sway there. Well, it, it, this is what the conservatives will tell you, yeah. is that the reality of the situation is, you know, an orange wave is a blue majority every single time. Uh, it sounds like you're uh, you're out of the car and in there now. And I, I'm, I guess you're making your way past all the actors outside the Ford headquarters. So I'll let you go at this stage, Alan. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> passing uh, the premier's uh, uh, security, so I don't want to get tasered. <laughs> okay, Alan. Thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again today. Okay. Bye now. Okay. Alan Carter, of course, anchor and uh, co-host of uh, Global News at five thirty and six, and uh, the Ottawa or the Queens Park bureau chief. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Steve Pekin's on the road, too. Steve, of course, is the host of The Agenda with TVO, and he joins us on The Bill Kelly Show uh, with his perspective. Uh, thanks so much for the time, Steve. Great to have you with us again today. Not at all. Good to be with you, Bill. I'm just actually leaving Kathleen Wynne's first official campaign stop, which is in, uh, I won't say the heart of Ford Nation, because we're in Etobicoke Lakeshore right now, but it's in Ford Nation which is the west end of the 416, and uh, it's just wrapping up. I want to talk to you about a couple of blogs. I'm going to do them in reverse order, though, since you were just uh, with the Premier. 
Uh, and, it, and it's the blog that was published uh, on, on today, I guess, or was, or was it yesterday, May 8th. Uh, it's tough being Kathleen Wynne at the leader's debate. Uh, and, and this is not a, a sympathetic article about be, you know, Kathleen Wynne. I mean, I think it's a very pragmatic approach and, and an observation uh, about some of the challenge that she's got as somebody who is, first of all, an incumbent, and B, obviously facing an awful lot of challenges, uh, both personal and professional, because of where she stands, uh, uh, not just where her party stands, but where she stands uh, as you know, in, in conjunction with where the other two are at this point. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, these things are decided by the luck of the draw, and as luck would have it, Kathleen Wynne at the City TV debate the other night was situated right in the middle. Uh, Andrea Horvath to her left and Doug Ford to her right, which kind of gave the impression that she was sort of surrounded on all sides and taking incoming from both of the opposition uh, politicians. So that was a bit difficult. And then the other thing is, which you've alluded to, is that uh, Premier Wynne, I I think, you know, I've I've watched her now in, in public life for almost 15 years, and she genuinely believes that if she has a chance to just marshal arguments against her opponents, that she can convince people that she's on the right track. And of course, the problem is with leadership debates is they're not really about who's got the best arguments and who knows the most stuff. It's really about who can get off a snappy one-liner that can be useful in campaign advertising uh, or on news clips uh, in the ensuing week. And under that format, uh, she's not as strong. And it seemed to me that the other two leaders uh, got off more of the sort of snappy one-liners that you will probably hear more about in the days ahead and, you know, for that reason, among others, uh, it seemed like she had a difficult night. This is the era of the soundbite, though, isn't it, Steve? Oh, my goodness, is it ever. And, you know, Bill, when you and I were starting in this business, a soundbite meant a minute. Yeah. And then maybe, thirty, you know, 25 years ago, it was 30 seconds. And now, I mean, you're lucky if you get five to ten seconds. So that whole hour and a half debate the other night uh, was basically for the purposes of coming up with five to ten second clips that could be used in campaign ads and on the news. And when you're trying to get across, as the premier is, uh, a defense of her program for the last five years that she's been the premier, uh, that's pretty hard to do in five to ten seconds. It's really easy to take shots in five to ten seconds. Again, as you pointed out, I'm not saying this to express any sympathy with the premier. Uh, this is the reality of being the incumbent, and it is the reality of having to defend a five-year record. And I think she understands that. And uh, we were just talking with Alan Carter from Global News just before you joined us, Steve, and, and he was alluding to, to that very fact and saying, uh, as evidence of this, look what she did yesterday morning. I mean, after the debate, she basically called a press conference and said, I blew it. Uh, you know, I had an opportunity there to jump all over Doug Ford when he said, when did you lose your way? And she says, I gave the wrong answer. So she understood full well that she could have delivered one of those sound bites or a zinger at that point, but she didn't. Yeah, she dropped the ball at that moment. And as uh, I mean, how many of your listeners have been in the midst of a good argument and then woken up at 3.30 in the morning and said to themselves, oh, my goodness, if only I had said X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And that's what the premier did yesterday. She, you're right. She, she gave actually a terrific speech in the legislature yesterday morning. Might be her last as premier. Who knows? It's certainly the last of this session. Uh, in which she said, I got up at 3.30 in the morning because I was just stewing over the fact that I gave a lousy answer to the question of how did you lose your way? And she went on to say, you know, what I should have said was, I haven't lost my way. I've never lost my way. And then went on quite extemporaneously. Like I saw her looking down at her notes maybe a half a dozen times in a 25-minute speech. She knew what she wanted to say. She said it yesterday morning in the legislature. Unfortunately for her, perhaps when more people were watching, she didn't come up with that answer at the leaders' debate. 
and but you know, as that moment was happening on at the leaders' debate, Steve, as soon as as Doug Ford asked her that, I expected her to say, "I haven't lost my way," and I thought, "Whoa, boy, did she ever miss this!" But the, the I guess the question we have to ask ourselves is, as I mentioned with Alan, do you get mulligans in politics? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, boy, do you, well, I guess the real answer to that is it depends. Um, you, you you can get a mulligan. I mean, Mr. Ford said some weird things the other night too. But, you know, if you look at the polling since the debate's been done, it seems that much of the public was prepared to give him a mulligan. I mean, he looked across at Kathleen Wynne and Andrea Horvath and he said, neither of you have gotten the experience in governing. I've been in government. I helped save a billion dollars when I was helping my brother be mayor of Toronto. Now, wait a second, Mr. Ford. You two have no experience in governing? Kathleen Wynne's been a cabinet minister uh, and, a, and the premier. I mean, to me, that sounds like governing. But, it, you know. I, I think he got a mulligan on that. Uh, there seems to be, obviously, given the nature of the polls these days, added sympathy for his position, given that he just became the leader a few months ago. He's found himself uh, thrust in, into the middle of a campaign uh, very late in the game, and the public seems to have a bit of a different standard on how they're going to judge him versus how they're going to judge uh, not only the premier, but I would say Andrea Horvath as well, for whom this is her third campaign as NDP leader. You've been watching this stuff for a long time, for many elections now, Steve, and, and uh, give me your read on that, because I, I understand that, and I think a lot of people were going to say, okay, we've got to cut this guy some slack, because he, he hasn't really done this sort of thing before. He's, had, you know, he's a one-term city councillor. Now he wants to be the premier of the province of Ontario. But, uh, you know, Richard Brennan, the former star reporter, of course, at Queen's Park, uh, told me that he says, you know, he said Mike Harris looked like that in his first debate way back in 1990. He was stiff, wooden, unsure of himself. He was a different guy five years later. I, I guess you can grow into the job, but, boy, it's got to be a little daunting to say, I'm up here in the big leagues now. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I would, I would absolutely agree with Richard Brennan. I remember Dalton McGinty in his first leaders' debate in 1999, very wooden. Uh, he ended up doing four of them. And I remember talking to him after the fourth one, which I had the honor of moderating. And I, I said, now that you've done four of these things, does it get any easier? And he literally just laughed at me and said, uh, maybe a little. Um, these things are incredibly high pressure, high stakes um, atmospheres. And not because so many people are watching it. I don't know what the ratings were on that debate Monday night, uh, Bill, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that uh, not that many people watched. But what they will watch were those clips. Uh, that will be replayed mm, in ads yeah. and on the news, and that stuff is going to penetrate. And the reality is, on that score, Horvath and Ford bested win. They came out with more good one-liners and ended up more on the news. And, you know, by that metric, uh, she's still got a ways to go. But and, and very little discussion, as you mentioned, about policy. It, it's the zinger, it's the soundbite. Because uh, a couple of times the Premier tried to explain why she was doing this. Or, you know, the autism question, I think, was one of those examples. And she got into it with transit as well. And it's, it's almost like the, the people are saying, we don't want details now. We just We just want the, you know, give me the headline. Don't give me the body of the story here. Well, as you know, television is not, uh, it's not a detail-oriented medium. It is a medium that conveys impressions. So the impression, first and foremost, that you want to leave in a debate is that you know what you're talking about, is yeah. that you're in command of your brief, is that you look strong, uh, in control, that you look like a, uh, either that you look like the premier or you look like you could be the premier. Uh, premier Wynne obviously believes that by nature of the fact that she knows, Bill, I'm convinced if you went up to Kathleen Wynne, cold turkey, gave her no time to prepare, and asked her, Premier, I want you to give me three minutes on the top 25 issues facing the province of Ontario today. She could nail it easily, first take, without a note. And I don't necessarily think the other two candidates could do that. But that's not what debates are about. They're not about who knows more stuff. They're, they're about conveying an impression. 
And Doug Ford, while he was, you know, very nervous off the top, understandably, his first leaders debate, he did improve as the debate went on and he did get off some good zingers. And by the end of it, I mean, we did a program on this last night Mm -hmm. and and, uh, Daryl Bricker, the pollster from Ipsos, made a really great point, which is that, you know, progressive voters tend to want to fall in love with their leaders. They want somebody who can, you know, command great oratory and have those skills. Uh, Conservatives don't care as much about that. They want somebody who, you know, basically get the job done and who looks like an ordinary person. And by that metric, we had two Ford supporters on last night who said, we don't care if he can't give a great speech or we don't care how nervous he looked in the debate. We like his program. We like what he's all about. So he's got our support. Some of us in the media need to remember that, that we're also, um, I think, enchanted from time to time by the by the person who's the great orator. Uh, and we have to remember that that's not necessarily what the electorate is looking for. Well, Stephen Harper and Mike Harris come to mind uh, to, to fill that that particular role. I mean, mm-hmm. neither one of them were dynamic uh, personalities. Uh, as a matter of fact, both of them probably the other end of the spectrum, but I mean, they both got elected. Uh, look, at it. The, the best example of this is the guy who's been the most successful Ontario politician of the last half century. That's Bill Davis. Yep. Won four straight elections, was premier for 14 years, second longest serving premier of all time in Ontario. And, uh, you know, with all due respect to Mr. Davis, he hardly made the, the words leap off the page. Uh, he, you know, he got better as his premiership went on, but uh, no one was ever going to accuse him of uh, you know, no one's going to confuse him for being Barack Obama when it came to giving a speech. By the way, there's a great book about him by a guy named Steve Pakin. People should still check out. Uh, no, I've, I've read that. That's not have you really? Idea. Good. Well, we'll have to have to get into that sometime. But I, that leads me to the blog from the other day, which and Bill Davis, I guess, is the quintessential example of that. Ontario votes in the middle. Bill Davis, John Robarts. And I think Dalton McGinney, maybe even David Peterson back in the time, as you mentioned in the blog, Steve, always tried to reach that middle. I don't see anybody, any one of the three major party leaders, and I'll even throw Mike Schreiner into that from the Green Party, going to the middle anymore. It just seems to be, this is the, the politics of polarization these days. Well, this is why I wanted to write about this so much, because I find this an absolutely fascinating development. You are quite right the way you've laid it out. The, the, the conventional wisdom in Ontario politics has always been whoever is in command of the sort of you know, vast middle of the political spectrum tends to win. Why? Because most Ontarians perceive themselves as being moderate people. And if you can command the greatest chunk of the moderate people who make up the populace of this province, chances are you're going to win. I look at the three main parties right now. I see two parties that are basically fighting with each other to be the champion of the progressive voice. You might even say the social democratic voice. I heard somebody the other day say to me, we got two socialist parties and one populist right wing party. You know, who's there representing the vast middle? Uh, Where do blue grits, you know, where do sort of conservative ish liberals mark their ballot? Where do red Tories mark their ballot? Uh, These are all, it seems to me, disenfranchised voters right now. Uh, again, I talked to Daryl Bricker about this after we got off the air last night. I said to him, you know, why does nobody, why is nobody interested in the middle anymore? That's where, uh, you know, election after election for the last 75 years have been won. And he said to me, it's old thinking, Steve. He said just what you said, which is that everybody seems to be polarizing, going for the edges. Um, he said moderate voters are unicorns nowadays. You know, it's sort of a, uh, a fantasy of what was. Uh, but they don't exist anymore. People have their, their, they're increasingly tribal, and they are going to the edges. Now, he's the researcher on this. He supposedly knows about this. I'm still a little bit skeptical of this because, you know, it seems to me that most elections are still one in the middle, and, and in my lifetime, I would say 90% of them have been won that way. This may be the outlier, uh, but it's obviously something to keep an eye on. 
One of the first elections I covered was a, a federal election. I remember talking to somebody who was a staunch liberal. This was out in Stony Creek. And and I said, oh, so, and I said, so obviously you always vote liberal. He said, oh, no, 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 no. I vote, I, says, I vote liberal federally, but I always support Bill Davis. I, I'm, I'm a conservative <laughs> supporter here in Ontario. And, and, and I found out as I talked to more people, there were a lot of people like that. That they, you know, the, yeah, conservatives here in Ontario, but or vice versa, but they just they, they didn't mind going over that fence. No, nobody even wants to go near that fence. I'm a and I'm I'm an NDP or I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative, and never the twain shall meet. That just seems to be the attitude these days. I would invite your listeners right now who are of a certain age, and I guess by that I mean you know sixty plus, to think uh, how many times in your life did you vote for Pierre Trudeau federally and Bill Davis provincially. And, and, you know, the federal liberal party and the provincial progressive conservative party like to think that they are dramatically different. But in fact, they were both parties that to a greater or lesser extent occupied the vast middle of the political spectrum, which may explain why they both were along, uh, around for such a very long period of time. Uh, the extremist parties, I'm not saying they can't win, obviously, um, but, but the odds on them winning have always been much taller uh, in the history of, of this province. So, uh, I don't know. To, to me, it's a fascinating development. If Bricker's right, this is a fascinating development whereby nobody wants to be the champion of the broad mill anymore. Everybody wants to head for the edges. Uh, so we'll see. But I find that a great, a, a very interesting development if you're into poli-sci 101 in Ontario. <laughs> well, w- one of the great anomalies, though, of, of that whole theory that we love to be in the middle here in Ontario uh, the, the the question I would ask then is then why do we go to polar opposites when we get ticked off with the government? And we did that in 1990. Uh, we, you know, we were ticked off at, at, at Doug P- or at, uh, David Peterson and didn't want to give the Tories another chance because we didn't really like that Frank Miller guy when he was here for a little while. So we went to the polar opposite. We went to the NDP. Uh, one term of that, and we said, oh, forget this. They didn't go to the middle. They went to the extreme right and took Mike Harris. And yes. it, it, just, it just seems as if, when boy, when we get really upset, we don't think about that middle anymore. We just say, okay, we're, we're going to do something radical here. Yes, we're going to try something very And, and that happened, as you know, of course, in, in, in uh, Alberta in the last election, too. That's why Rachel Notley's there. Absolutely right. And, and you know, I think you put your finger on what Andrea Horvath's great hope is uh, for this election, which is basically, you know, we've had enough of the liberals, Horvath would say. Uh, Doug Ford is just the wrong answer. If you want cataclysmic change, then Ford's probably the guy. But if you want change for the, I mean, Horvath is using this expression, change for the better. Yeah. You know, if you don't hate the agenda so much, you've just had enough of the liberals. Well, why don't you try me on for size? And frankly, it was the same message that Bob Ray was using in 1990, where he said, you know, the liberals are discredited. We don't like what they're doing. The Tories, we just kicked them out after 42 years. You know, here am I. I've been around for eight years. You know me. That's my third election campaign. Give me a try. And enough of the people did that he got a majority government. Horvath is playing out of the same playbook. She's saying, like Bob Ray, this is my third election. And if you don't like either of the other two options, here's me. Try me on for size. As uh, I, you never know. As I sat here in this chair back in 1990 listening to voters, and, and that was exactly the sentiment that I heard. I heard very few people say, I really like this NDP agenda. I, what I did hear them say was, I'm sick of the other two. I'm going to give these guys a shot. I, I, and I had no idea exactly what they were voting for. They just didn't want to vote for the other two. And I, I sense some of that in the air this time, and certainly the public opinion polling of the last week is picking that up, where the NDP, I think in most polls now, are in second place running ahead of the Liberals. And of course, if the NDP can portray themselves as the logical receptacle and the logical champion of the so-called progressive voter in Ontario, 
that is an ominous development for the government because that 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 means everybody's giving up on win and the liberals and they are shooting over to the ndp in hopes of stopping ford nation and if that happens that's how the ndp wins and it seems to me i'm not predicting it's going to happen i'm saying it is a it is a possibility it's a logical outgrowth of the times we find ourselves in right now well, and that's what Daryl Brooker's poll talked about, and I know I'm sure you guys talked about it on the program. I usually watch it the next afternoon, which I'll do when I get home today. Uh, is is simply that? Look at we know that the support for Doug Ford is solid, but probably that's it's capped. It's not going very much higher. Uh, but there's a whole lot of people in, in the province right now that maybe vote liberal. Say, look at I don't want Doug Ford to be the premier. I guess I'm going to vote NDP. And, and that's happened before. And, and, and like I say, I think a lot of people are wondering. That's, I guess what they're going to be doing now is seeing is there going to be a bump with the NDP now because of that. I think progressive conservative voters have a most interesting choice to make. I know that when Patrick Brown was the leader and particularly many of the rhetoricians, the more moderate Tories, they liked that he was sort of taking the party away from where Tim Hudak, the former leader, had it, moving it more into the middle, uh, a more moderate party, uh, a more multicultural party. Uh, a party that was sort of reaching out to more uh, ethnic communities and certainly to LGBTQ issues in a way that uh, Tim Hudak had not, those voters have a very tough call. Uh, those voters don't like Doug Ford, but those voters identify as progressive conservatives. And while they may like their local candidates, I've talked to uh, you know, plenty of them over the last few weeks, and I've said, what are you going to do? And it is a real conundrum for them. They want to vote Tory. They certainly want to get rid of the, of the government. They're just so conflicted about Doug Ford. So I think Mr. Ford's task over the next 20, whatever it is, 27, 28 days, uh, is to convince moderate Tories uh, that he is not the second coming of the chaos that characterized his brother's regime when he was the mayor of Toronto. And I think, in fairness to Doug Ford, I think we've seen some of that early on here. Uh, Bill, when, when, when Doug Ford was caught on tape saying, we're going to let the developers go into the green belt and, and you know, lower the cost of housing by building in the green belt. The uh, in, enormous outrage to those comments forced him to backpedal, and he did a 180 uh, right away the next day. Um, he, you know, he, there are a couple other issues. I think of uh, safe injection sites, uh, where he, his initial opinion was absolutely not under no circumstances, and he's still not a fan of them, but at least now he's saying, well, I'll listen to what the evidence has to say. I'll listen to the experts, but I'm inclined to know. These are signals that I think he's sending out to moderate conservatives in the hopes that they will not automatically reject him and, and say, well, you may not be our guy, but maybe we can live with you. Steve Pakin, uh, you can see him on the agenda with Steve Pakin, of course, on TVO, at TVO.org, by the way, where the blogs, you can find those out, too. There's always a great read. Steve, great pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Always a delight. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Green Party of Ontario. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about his platform. Mike, uh, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Hey, Bill. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and your listeners. Yeah, I, you're on transit. I know you guys are going to be all over the province over the next couple of weeks, obviously. I know you're going to be in Hamilton later today, though, aren't you? That's right. Yeah, so we launched our campaign in Toronto this morning, and I'll be traveling to Hamilton, Kitchener, and then home to Guelph. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about what happened on Monday night, uh, the debate. I know, obviously, uh, you watched it. Uh, what stood out for you in that debate? What were your impressions, aside from the fact that you weren't there? I mean, what stood out for you? Uh, and, and I want to talk about that as well, because I've, I've had a lot of feedback from the listeners over the last couple of weeks 
uh, suggesting that the Green Party should be included in this. But you did get a chance to see your three opponents uh, up on the stage there at, at, at City TV, of course. Uh, your thoughts as what uh, what you saw, what you heard. Well, Bill, I think I'm the winner of that debate because it was a gong show. And I tell you what, what I saw on Monday night is exactly why people are so disgusted with status quo politics in Ontario. And the sad reality is, is what you saw on Monday night is exactly what happens in question period all the time. You have the three status quo parties that are more interested in tearing each other down than they are in building Ontario up. And I encourage everyone to go to my Twitter feed where I live-tweeted answers to each one of the debate questions, and I provided people with straightforward, honest answers to each one of those questions, not that bickering we saw among the other three. Well, let's talk about some of the stuff that came up there vis-a-vis uh, -vis to topics and subject matter. Uh, transit was a big one. I know transit's big in, in, in your hometown, obviously. It's big in Toronto. It's big yes. and very controversial here in Hamilton. Uh, Mr. Ford made a, a, a campaign announcement earlier today uh, about increased funding for LRT projects uh, in, in Ottawa, in, uh, in uh, Mississauga. Uh, talked about the KW line, of course, and, uh, and I mentioned public transit in Hamilton. I didn't mention LRT specifically. Uh, talk to us about the Green Party position on transit. Well, first of all, Bill, can we get a bus between Guelph and Hamilton? Like, just something really simple like that, because I know so many people in Guelph who travel to Hamilton and vice versa, and while we're at it, how about a connection to KW? We can't even get the basics right in Ontario, and that is exactly why the Green Party will spend more money on transit infrastructure than any of the other parties. It is why we are pledging to cover 50% of the operating costs of transit so we can keep transit affordable in our communities, and it's why we're going to be honest with people about how to pay for it. The other three parties pretend that magic money and fairy dust is going to pay for it. I mean, I don't even know how Doug Ford can talk about cutting taxes the way he is, and then out of the other side of his mouth say that we can invest, he's going to invest more in transit. Like, I don't know, I'm a small business owner, Bill. Like, that math doesn't add up. The Green Party is following expert advice, whether it's the Board of Trade, Metrolinks, the Golden Report, all of them have said that if we're going to be able to fund transit in a fiscally responsible way that doesn't balloon our deficit, we need to have congestion charges to drive into Toronto, which will help reduce gridlock and provide money for transit. We need to bring in commercial parking levies in the GTA, looking at land value taxes around transit hubs. That would all raise around $3 billion to fund transit. That's what it's going to take is honest solutions with, uh, to help fund transit, not magic money and fairy dust. By the way, to your question about getting a bus between Hamilton and, uh, and Guelph, uh, I'm not so sure if I'd even want one because the highway's not very safe. It's a 1950s highway, and this is 2018 the last time I looked, and I'd like to think that you'd upgrade that at some point. No, very good point, Bill. But you know what? The, the point I'm trying to make with that is, is, you know, we have politicians who run around and promise the moon, but yet can't get the basics right. And and so we need to have a long-range vision for electrifying our, our regional GO service, having all-day two-way GO service. We need to have a long-term vision for high-speed rail, but we have to get the fundamentals right as well. And that's what Queen's Park is failing at 
that's why the Green Party is being honest with people about how we can build out world-class transit and pay for it. Mike, what about that? Because you're talking about what some people might consider to be radical ideas to, f- to raise funds for transit, to, 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 to pay for this. Uh, and, and even the idea, for instance, of, of, about, as you say, the, the tax uh, on places like the Gardner Expressway and things of that nature. I mean, even Mayor Tory uh, talked about that during the campaign, but he backtracked pretty quickly when he got an earful from a lot of the voters. Is there an appetite for that sort of thing in this province? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Mayor Tory actually embraced it um, once he became mayor because he looked at the books and he was like, well, how else are we going to do this? Magic money and fairy dust won't do it. Bill, can I just tell you a quick story? I was knocking on doors in Guelph in the last election and I spoke to a gentleman and I told him how we would fund all day two-way go service between Guelph, KW and Toronto. And he said, there's no way I would vote for you because you're going to charge me to go to a Leafs game. And I said, you know, I respect that. I understand where you're coming from, especially when you've got a liberal government that doesn't spend money responsibly. But I hope you respect me for being honest with you, because no other politician is going to sit here on your porch and tell you something you probably don't want to hear, but maybe you need to hear. And, you know, I knocked on a few other doors, and he called me back, and he said, Mike, green guy, come back here. And I went back, and he said, you know what? I want to sign for my yard. I'm going to vote for you. And I said, well, what made you change your mind? He said, oh, I still don't like your policy. But you're right. You were honest with me. And if we don't have honest politicians, we're never going to have honest government. And for decades now, we have had politicians saying we're going to build out transit, and they haven't delivered on it because they haven't been honest with people about how to pay for it. Well, I mean, I read some of the stuff that Doug Ford talked about today, and and, and hey, I, I think it's fabulous. I mean, you know, more money for transit, great idea. Uh, he's talking about uh, all-day go service all the way down to Niagara, great idea. But that's been on the books for about 20 years, Mike, and it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened. You're right, Bill, and it's not going to happen if Doug Ford's going to cut, cut, cut. I just don't understand. Like, I don't. Maybe I think somebody with, with grade five math can figure this out in a way that Mr. Ford can't. But you know what? It's the the NDP and the Liberals are doing the exact same thing. It, oh no! Listen, listen. All these a, things a, without a pox, about paying for them either. A pox on all their houses. I mean, they've all promised it <laughs> at one time or another. Absolutely. And so, you know, this is why people are so disgusted with the status quo at Queen's Park. It's because they're tired of politicians saying one thing or promising something they can't deliver on. And so we somehow have created this political culture where politicians promise the moon, but don't actually look people in the eye and, and be honest with them that if you want transit, we have to pay for it. If you want better health care services, we have to pay for it. Yes, we can. government can be more efficient. There's no doubt about that. But to pretend that you can cut taxes and um, pay, put more money into transit is, is magical thinking. Yeah, but we have a mindset here in North America, and I'm not going to suggest whether it's right or wrong, but it's, it's something that we need to deal with. Is, is that we lambaste politicians at all levels of government to lower our taxes, lower our taxes all the time, uh, yet on the other side of our mouth we're saying, but we need this, we need this, we need this. And and the politicians seem to hear the first part of that, and they say, okay, we're going to keep costs low. And I, I'm not suggesting we just throw money at everything, because that's not the practical solution to do anything. But when I look at other jurisdictions in the world, and the U.K. and Scandinavia coming to mind right off the bat, yeah, their taxes are a little higher than what we might pay, but they have a better quality of life. They have the best education system. They have the best health care system. Uh, they are the quote-unquote happiest people in the world right now because they love the quality of life. Why aren't we learning from, from those areas and saying they seem to be doing it better than we're doing it? 
Well, Bill, I think part of it is is you've had a, a liberal government that's mismanaged so much money. I think of the gas plant scandals. I think of the orange scandal. I think of their private-public partnership scandals. Um, and so people start losing distrust in government's ability to manage money responsibly. And then you have somebody like Doug Ford who comes along who can't do math and, and has this magical thinking. And I understand why people just get fed up and disgusted. But I'm saying you don't have to live with it that way. We can do politics differently. You don't have to be stuck with the three status quo parties. Elected Greens across Canada, now in British Columbia, holding the balance of responsibility in a minority government, are proving that we can elect Greens, we can take on the status quo parties, and we can do politics differently in a way that puts people first. But the criticism about a lot of the stuff that the Green Party is advocating uh, is is simply from the business community that say, you know what, these guys don't get business. They don't understand that you've got to help business. Uh, And as a matter of fact, you're going to choke business if you implement a lot of these policies. You've heard that before, Mike. Bill, that is so not true. I'm a longtime small business owner. We are the only party that's calling for lowering payroll taxes on small businesses to provide them with immediate cash flow relief so they can pay their employees more money and they can create additional jobs. I am all for raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. I believe no one who works full-time should, should be living in poverty. But I also recognize that we have to support our small businesses, our family-run businesses, our entrepreneurs, our new startups. And by lowering their payroll taxes, that helps them create more jobs, better paying jobs. And by the way, having more money in the pocket of um, lower wage workers and having more money in the pocket of local businesses to create more jobs puts more money into our local economies, creating more economic activity and generating more prosperity that we can then use to invest in good public services. It's a win-win for everyone. What I'm hoping is going to be one of the key elements of this election here is, is going to be the, the daycare proposal that the, the Liberals came out with. Not necessarily yes. theirs, but the concept of it. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, the progressive conservatives have responded, uh, and Doug Ford talked about a, a tax credit uh, for daycare, not unlike what Stephen Harper did uh, back in 2006 mm-hmm. when, he, of course, he became prime minister. Uh, I've got a philosophical problem with this, and, and I'll explain it to you, then I want to get your reaction to it. Uh, people that need daycare, more often than not, need the cash in their pockets to to pay for it. A tax credit once a year when they get their taxes done at the end of February uh, is not going to help them on a weekly basis to pay for daycare. It's not going to create spaces for daycare. Uh, it's just a tax credit, uh, which is really, right. it, it's kind of, it, I, I just uh, I think it's a wrong-headed idea. And it's uh, clearly from somebody, developed by somebody, and I'm not pointing to Doug Ford necessarily because a lot of people advocate this sort of thing, but it's developed by people who really don't understand what young families are going through and the financial pressures. Talk to me about daycare. Talk to me about the Green Party's policy for daycare. Yeah, Bill, you, you raise a very good point. So uh, we support affordable child care. We know it's essential for young families. It's particularly important for um, women in, in, in the workforce, in particular around equal pay. You know, most people don't realize that one of the reasons that of the disparity in wages between men and women often, oftentimes is associated with um, lack of access to affordable child care and the disruptions that uh, – places in many people's career paths. And so our approach would be an approach that 
would look at providing affordable child care, like $12 a day child care for people, and putting money into child care providers' pockets to help create additional affordable spaces for people. Because the bottom line is, if you have a tax credit, but there is no space to put your child into, then it's not going to do you much good. And so we have to recognize that we have to support um, licensed licensed um, facilities, particularly in schools, uh, but we also then have to make sure that we don't have an overly onerous licensing system for people who want to have licensed uh, home daycares as well. So we, we support a wide range of options for parents, and we have enough affordable spaces for parents to access. And again, as I say, I hope this actually becomes one of the main things that are going to be discussed here because I think it's something that has to be done. Because I, I, I know that every time I bring this up on the program, I'm going to get people, and I'm going to get it today, I know, that are going to say, we can't afford that, it's a silly idea, the government shouldn't be paying for that. And and I usually counter them and tell them, you know what, 120 years ago we said that about education, that you know the government shouldn't be involved in that. We're smarter than that now, at least with education. Uh, if we come to the point here in this province where we understand that this is for working families, this is almost a necessity that needs to be addressed? Absolutely, Bill. I mean, you know, think of the struggles of uh, young working families. We have a, a housing market that's just out of control, and people can barely afford to find a place to call home. You have uh, huge costs for, for ch- access to child care, and you have a lot of the essentials, like your electricity prices going through the roof. And so... Ask young families are struggling to make ends meet. That's exactly why the Green Party has an affordable housing strategy that's saying any new development, condo, um, uh, townhome, rental, whatever, would have a minimum 20% affordable housing units to ramp up the supply of affordable housing. That's why we're saying let's get innovative and um, create opportunities for tiny houses and laneway houses and secondary suites and homes to better utilize our existing building stock to have more affordable housing so people can afford to have a place to call home. That's why we're saying, you know what, let's invest in affordable uh, child care so working families can make an economic contribution to our, our economies create jobs, create wealth, create prosperity, and let's be honest about how to pay for it. And so the Green Party has been looking, we're the only party that's saying, hey, we'll, we'll be clear about ways we can save money. Like we would cancel the Liberals' unfair hydro plan, which another one of these things that Doug Ford's embraced, both the Liberals and the Conservatives want to spend 40 to $90 billion to take 25% off your electricity bill right before the election. We all know the bills are going to go up after the election. That is 20, that's 40 to $90 billion that could be spent on, on accessible child care, better health care, better education, better public services, transit, etc. And we can look at things like not giving away our natural resources and actually raising our, our resource uh, royalty rates to, you know, the same level, let's say, Saskatchewan and bringing in that money to help fund better public services. And so I think what we need is a balanced approach that both looks at ways that we can save money and have government operate more efficiently, 
and ways that we can raise additional revenue without putting the burden on people with modest and middle incomes so we can afford good public services and we need to make sure we have a government that's going to deliver them efficiently and effectively. I just about out of time, but uh, I, I want to get down to the brass tacks here, but what people can see and, 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 and actually uh, make a judgment on. Uh, the Liberals, I guess, uh, well, their budget was their de facto campaign policy platform, and that's been costed out. And it's, Well, it's already been analyzed, of course, by the Auditor General. Uh, the NDP right. have, have a, a costed plan that's out there right now, so the voters can have a look at this. Uh, the Progressive Conservatives, not yet. Uh, they say there may be one coming uh, before the election. That would be nice. And what about your plan? Is, is there a fully costed plan they can look at, the voters can look at and, 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 and make their own judgments about what you're offering and how much it's going to cost? Absolutely, Bill. So if people go to gpo.ca slash vision, you'll see a comprehensive vision of the Green Party's, how the Green Party will address a number of issues across you know, a wide range of uh, issue areas. And then on Monday of next week, we'll be uh, releasing a costed platform. What will be our nine priorities? So our priority is to create, jo- create jobs, put people and planet first. And we're going to give you three priorities of how we'll create jobs, how we'll invest in people, and how we're going to protect our planet and the people and places we love. And we're going to cost out each one of those three priorities for you. Uh, so that'll come out on Monday. In the meantime, go to Flash Vision, and you'll see how we will tackle a wide range of issues. Mike Schreiner, uh, leader of the Green Party of the province of Ontario. Mike, always uh, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Absolutely, Bill. Anytime. I always enjoy talking to people in Hamilton. Take care now. We'll talk again soon. And uh, as we mentioned, we'll uh, uh, get the other party leaders on for you over the uh, course of time uh, between now and June 7th. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.